Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a transplant surgeon explains isolate transplantation, a new operation designed to help people with diabetes. People because of obesity, uh, they have insulin, but the insulin they have is not enough. Certainly pancreatic transplant can help. A social worker talks about her role in helping patients with occupational health concerns. You know, it doesn't just stop with your work injury. You may have had high blood pressure and now you can't afford your meds. And because they've lost their insurance, they can no longer afford it and they think, oh my gosh, what do I do? And a medical professor and researcher talks about patient-centered diabetes care. Those with BMI of 35 to 40, which is morbidly obese, we recommend bariatric surgery or a metabolic surgery 30 to 50% of the times the diabetes can be completely reversed. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore science, health, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll look at the specialty of occupational health and the role of a social worker in that field. Then we'll learn about patient-centered diabetes care from a medical professor and researcher. But first, a transplant surgeon explains a new operation designed to help people with diabetes. There's a new treatment option for people with severe diabetes or certain chronic pancreatic diseases that involves transplanting some special cells of the pancreas called islets. Here to talk about this is Dr. Mark Loftabi. He's a professor of surgery and transplant surgeon who's interim chief of transplant services at Upstate University Hospital. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So tell me about what, uh, what type of patient is uh, most appropriate for this type of surgery. Well, let me explain about the pancreas. Uh, it's a complex organ, mostly built for uh, secreting digestive enzymes. So 90, more than 98, 99% of the whole organs serve to secrete enzymes that can digest the food we eat every day. Now, the nature has put some cells called islet cells or beta cells inside the pancreas that indeed... Uh, secrete insulin, and okay. that is for cure of diabetes. So some people get chronic pancreatitis or some chronic pancreatic disease, uh, which is a devastating disease uh, causing a lot of pain, interfere with their life and their activity. When you say pancreatitis, I, itis means it's an inflammation, right? Yes, but it's a chronic. It's not like something acute. We have acute pancreatitis that may be treated and uh, cure for uh, a good time, but chronic pancreatitis is a repeating inflammation of the pancreas, and these people have episode of uh, pancreatitis uh, within every two three months, or even more. So and during that episode, are they hospitalized? Yes, mostly need to be hospitalized, uh, keep MPO because anytime we eat, we stimulate the pancreas. So they can't uh, eat. Exactly, and some of them live on TPN or IV food, oh. and then uh, is a devastating disease, as I said, uh, causing a lot of trouble to the patients and influence on their uh, life 
life and their activity. Uh, therefore, these people sometimes need surgery, but uh, at the end, they need to uh, remove, we need to remove the pancreas. But when we remove the pancreas, this patient become uh, diabetics because we remove the islet cells too. Now, there is a, a new cutting-edge therapy that we can take that bad pancreas and digest it in the lab and pick, pick up the islet cells and then inject them inside the liver. We're going to live and secrete insulin. So the patients, after removal of their pancreas, don't need insulin anymore. Because you've taught the liver how to take over that role. Yes. Huh. And uh, this is a tremendous improvement in their life because diabetes also is a devastating disease that can cause many secondary complications, including kidney failure, blindness, major vascular disease, cardiac problems. Uh, diabetes impact everywhere in the body, on your nerves, in your heart, in your vessels. So how well does the liver adapt to this new job? The good things about this kind of therapy that you don't use uh, immunosuppression because it is your own cells and does not need uh, us to give you some medication to prevent rejection. So you're just moving cells from one organ to another. Another organ, that's true. There is other type also that we do islet cell transplant. In the second phase here is that when we use the, uh, for diabetic patients, on those we use the, uh, the aloe islet. And so we'll get into that. That's the same type of operation, but for, for diabetes, right? That's right. Um, but I have some more questions about how this works in, in the operation. So you simply remove the pancreas from the patient during the operation. Right. Uh, then the pancreas goes to a lab? Yes. The pancreas goes immediately to the lab and processed there, and the islet will be removed from the uh, bad pancreas. And then is the back. islet is the islet one one little section or are these islet cells scattered throughout the pancreas? What is? Yes, there are a couple cells in the islet cells that regulate the uh, sugar in the body, and therefore the, we remove the whole islet. But the most islet cells that we use are the beta cells, that they are responsible for secretion of uh, insulin. Now, are these visible to the naked eye? Or yes. Or we really? will, no, not in naked eye, uh, with the microscope. Microscope, okay. Yes. So is the patient still in the operating room while the lab technician is doing the work to remove the eyelets? Yes, it takes two, three hours to have them ready, but we need to reconstruct because when we remove the pancreas, then we have to reconstruct the bowel, and then we have to hook it back to the stomach and do some surgery. So when we are done with that uh, surgery, then the islet are ready to be injected. And then through the vein that we call it the portal vein, it is the venous vein that supplies the uh, liver. Uh, we inject them there and they will go and sit in the liver and start to secrete insulin. Do they start working right away? Yes, but we may, the patient need to uh, have insulin because we want the islet to rest for a while till 
they recover from the processing injury. Okay, interesting. So uh, if you do this operation for someone with diabetes, is it done the same way? Yes, it's normally, but now we take it from a deceased donor. We take the pancreas from deceased donors, and then we process the pancreas, and we do the same procedure, but here we don't remove the patient pancreas. So the patient pancreas remain intact. So and it continues with the digestive enzymes? Exactly. Okay. And then we will uh, take these cells and uh, inject in the liver. In the whole pancreas transplant, we indeed transplant an organ that 98% of that organ does not serve the aim of the transplantation because 98% is the digestive enzymes that the patient normally have his own digestive enzymes through his own pancreas. But then he needs the beta cells or the islet cells. And therefore, in diabetes, only the islet cells are killed or destroyed by the, the body immune system. So, and then we, in the whole pancreas, we transplant bowel and we transplant the other cells that we don't need them. And they actually, the major uh, challenge or complication occur because of the, these kind of cells or they secrete these very strong enzymes that normally can chew the food. So are you saying our islet transplants, would, they, would this replace the need for pancreas transplants? That's right. Entirely? So in the future, we believe that this, because is a huge difference in the procedure, normally whole pancreas transplant is a big surgical procedure, uh, requiring a couple hours of uh, surgery. Here, Plus waiting for the appropriate donor to become right. available. Here we can do it as an outpatient. So it's a very simple procedure with uh, our intervention radiologist can put a small catheter in the vein and we can inject them. It does not even need a general anesthesia. It can be done even local. Now we haven't um, talked about with, with diabetes, are we talking about type 1 or type 2 or both? Well, currently for type 1 and also type 2 because... Uh, a slim type 2, those who are not obese, anybody who they don't have enough insulin, they can benefit. And it's not very easy sometimes to uh, differentiate between type 1 and type 2 because a lot of classifications uh, are not precise. A lot of people think that young people are mostly type 1, but young people can be type 2. A lot of people think type 2 are mostly adult or older patients and mostly African-American, but that's not true. African-American can have type 1, and even older people can develop type 1 diabetes. So that classification is not very clear, uh, but we look to something called C-peptide and other factors to determine if they have uh, insulinopenia, which means that their insulin in their body is low. So there is sometimes people, because of obesity, uh, they have insulin, but the insulin they have is not enough for that body when they become uh, big. So, uh, but when you have insulinopenia, when the insulin in your body is low, certainly pancreatic transplant can help.
Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with transplant surgeon Mark Loftavi about islet transplants. So you mentioned um, immunosuppressants are not needed after an islet transplant because it's the patient's own islet cells. Yes. That's, um, you know, one of the challenging transplant that we have to use uh, medications, uh, which we call them immunosuppressant. And those medications uh, have uh, many side effects, including that you're, you can be more prone to infection, to cancer. Uh, and therefore, in the autotransplant, you don't need to use those medications. Okay. Are there um, risks of the surgery, or what are the risks of undergoing an islet transplant? Well, the islet cells, uh, um, the procedure for uh, putting the islet in the liver normally it has a low risk compared to the whole pancreatic surgery. Uh, but there is a risk of sometimes thrombosis, like mean clot in the liver, or bleeding because we anticoagulate the patient during the procedure. Uh, but they are not too high, let's say. Okay. You, and you said it's less risk than a, a full pancreas transplant. Absolutely. Um, what about long-term for islet transplants? How do we know the liver is going to keep doing this, you know, insulin production indefinitely? For the auto-islet, actually, the outcome are uh, very good. In about 70% of the patient uh, don't need insulin anymore. But also many other factors are uh, playing role there but some people kept it for a long time so it depends how the body react and something we call fibrosis because the uh, if you get fibrosis around the islet cells then it limits uh, their function uh, okay what uh, what other changes would a patient um, see after they've undergone an islet transplant um, what's recovery like, and then long-term, are there changes that they see? Well, majority of the patient, uh, the pain will go away because this is a really uh, painful uh, disease. Uh, in our program, uh, we have a multidisciplinary team, including the GI, uh, psych, uh, Gastro, pain management. Gastroenterology, yes. psychiatry. Psychiatry and uh, social worker, dietitians surgeons and medical uh, uh, physicians. Uh, we evaluate these patients extensively uh, from many aspects and then we come with a plan for them and uh, <clears throat> would be followed after procedure also for a good time. And we work with them, coach them to uh, have a better and happier life. This kind of disease are not easy to treat. They are complex, and they need a comprehensive team to work on that in a collaboration with the patients and their physician to have a good outcome. Are there any conditions that a, a person with pancreatitis might also have that would prohibit them from having the islet transplant? Yes, some of them, they develop diabetes. So when the islet is already killed, then we cannot use them. Ah, good point. 
but other than that, are there age restrictions or any other um, guidelines for? No, it depends also to how many islets we can uh, capture from the uh, diseased pancreas. So uh, hopefully we can get as much as possible. If the number is very low, then they may not, uh, they may still need some insulin. But you wouldn't know that real, or is there a way to assess how many islets there are before you're doing the operation? We do. We actually can count them and see how many we are giving. And if we go enough numbers, then the success rate is higher than when we capture very little islet cells. So if if there's someone in the community who has pancreatitis and they're interested in this, how would they get in touch with you? They can call the transplant program at Upstate and then we will call them back and get some information and we'll be arranging for an appointment with them. So for listeners, that number would be 315-464-5413. Very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing this information. Um, My guest has been Dr. Mark Laptavi. He's the Interim Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, meet a social worker in occupational health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Social workers work in hospitals, schools, nursing homes, the legal system, and a variety of fields. And today we're going to meet a social worker who's devoted to occupational health. With me in the studio is Carla Patterson Wingate. She works in Upstate's Occupational Health Clinical Center. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So we want to hear all about the role you play in occupational health. If I was a patient at the Occupational Health Clinical Center, um, how would our paths cross, or would they? Do you see everyone that comes there? So, no, I don't see everyone. Um, Your path starts first from the assessment from the provider, so a nurse practitioner or our doctor, Dr. Lax. Um, And then they'll ask you some, some, you know, some informal and formal questions, and depending on the way the questions are answered or your needs, then you're usually funneled to me. Um, I'd say I see pretty much 90% of the patients they see because even though you may not need um, intense counseling or therapy, there's still things you need to know about comp and navigation and maybe vocational rehab or things like that, things that I have information and can help you right there, right in the office, take care of it there. So by comp, you mean workers' comp? Workers' compensation, yeah. Um, Yeah. A lot of the patients at occupational health have a workers' comp it came from a worker's comp injury or something? Yeah, okay. yeah. So the p- patients we see have been injured or got really ill at work, and they're usually trying to, um, A, find someone who believes that they have really got hurt, and B, start and initiate their comp case. So a lot of our patients are um, in the worker's comp system. Okay. So 
what sorts of issues do you find yourself working on with patients most frequently? What's the most common thing? The most common thing I would say is working with patients with intense therapy for their depression because they have to sort of make adjustments to new life. You know, you don't want to hear, you know, I think about myself, I'm working in social work and for, for me to get hurt one day and someone to say, oh, I'm sorry, you're not able to work. I, I don't I don't recommend you go back to work. You're not able to do your job. It's life changing because your job turns into your life pretty much, right? And so to hear yeah. those words and these patients can't go back to work, it's really about trying to help them work through that new adjustment, that new technical life, and also trying to save what they have you know, save their homes because it's not an easy road. You, you know, if you're out of work, you don't have enough vacation days, sick days, maybe you're not even unionized, maybe you don't have any of those perks. You're trying to save your home, keep your family stable, and trying to hold on to any resource you can. So I do a lot of that, you know. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm the typical uh, social worker, whereas I, I don't just say, oh, I'll only see you for counseling. No, I like to help them through every step, Um getting the resources they need and trying to become, help them become some somewhat stable, if I can. It doesn't always work, but I definitely try. Well, that's what I was wondering. If someone's been, you know, injured um, or severely ill because of their work, mm-hmm. there's got to be a lot of, like, non-medical, maybe more than just there's the medical. There's a lot that's to, right. to deal with. That's right. And if you've been working all your life and haven't had, you, you've had not had to use any resources, you don't know where to begin, you know? You don't know where to begin. You don't know how to start life over. Um, I think it's really pertinent to say how I got into this actual place, this occupational health. Um, my dad was injured at work oh. years ago. Now, tell me, were you are you from the Syracuse area? I I'm, I, that... I grew up in Auburn, but I live in Syracuse. My whole family's in Syracuse. Okay. Yeah, and my, my mother's side is in Auburn. But um, my dad worked at a factory in Auburn, and I lived with my dad from 16 on up. He hurt himself, and he's limited with his education. He didn't, he didn't graduate high school. He, he can't really read or write. And he got hurt, so I'm like, okay, you're hurt. Your knee's hurt. It's clear. Black and white, they should you know, pay for your surgery. You get back to work. Well, it mm-hmm. didn't happen like that. And eventually, he started not to get checks, and he was like really private about it. And I'm like, okay, Dad, but you can't pay the bills. What's going on? What's going on? Finally, I looked, and some of the things he weren't, he wasn't replying to. He didn't understand some of the comp lingo, workers' comp lingo, things like that. Eventually, he lost his house, and he ended up moving with his sister, and it just really burned me. And I ended up taking over his whole wow. comp thing, doing his whole case, interviewing for a job here at Upstate, and he actually ended up being a patient here and oh, he wow. and in his understanding he thought that our office was the comp office so he was always mad when he had to come to our office because he thought they didn't believe him things like that and so I got to change his perception of that and the whole upstate Oc clinical center and got him somewhat stable but you know the amount of loss that he had to endure before we could get even borderline stable it was horrible it was horrible and he's never been the same so that's why I really feel like I have a connection with the patients, too, because in patients, I see a piece of me, like my father, like, hey, you know, I understand. You know, I'm not just saying I understand. I really understand. I've watched this happen, and I'm really going to try to help you prevent that. And if I can't, I'm sorry, but I definitely will, you know, will try. Boy, patients are lucky to have someone as passionate as you looking out for. Because, oh, thank you. like you say, I mean, if you're if you're in the middle of a health crisis mm-hmm. and people are, if they're coming to your office you for care, are. 
um, that's probably the hardest time to think straight about something that's complicated to start with, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And again, if you've never learned it, if workers' comp is new to you, and it is to most people who haven't had a claim, um, you know, where to begin? Right. How how do you, do you have a class or do you sit down and have an appointment with each person one-on-one? How does that work? Um, No. So how, so pretty much after their assessment with one of the providers, they meet with me and okay, I do my own assessment just to see what you need right away. Okay, so if housing is your main thing, let's try to get you some help or resources to try to maybe help with your rent or your mortgage or whatever. Um, A lot of times they don't have health insurance. Health insurance is a big one. I've seen people on comp just, because you know, when you're on workers comp, they'll provide medical only for that injury or illness that you've gotten at your job. But you've lost your job, now you don't have any health insurance. So I do a lot of enrolling them right there in the office for health insurance, because I've seen a lot of patients go years without help for other things, you know, only focused on their work injury, but they have all these other needs, but they think, oh, I'm not going to be able to get it. I'm not qualified. And a lot of times the navigators or um, wherever they apply for health insurance, they turn them down because they do get workers' compensation. But, you know, when you get workers' compensation, it's an untaxable income. It doesn't count. And you know, they, they often need help with an advocate there with them to say, hey, to the navigator on the other end, their comp income does not count. It's not, you know, a right. ongoing income. We don't know when it'll stop. Please enroll them. And so I've gotten a lot of people helped with health insurance, too. I think that's the that's number one for me, because I see a lot of, you know, it doesn't just stop with your work injury. You may have had high blood pressure and now you can't afford your meds. I've seen people who've needed their meds for diabetes and because they've lost their insurance, they can't no longer afford it. And they think, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, they're really, they're really in a crisis. They're really in a crisis. So I assess them, see what they need, try to handle the the hazards first, the, the priorities first, and then we, then we move on. Well, there's probably some legal stuff too, if oh, they're gosh. trying to get, um, I don't know, compensated in some way from their employer, right? Yeah, definitely. So as far as the legal stuff, we do have a list of our recommended lawyers who work really well with our office. So uh, we always refer, whether provider or me, uh, we're always providing them with a list of lawyers who we're really familiar with, or they can choose whoever, whomever they want to, but people who have an education and knowledge of workers' compensation and how it works and sort of can relate to the patients, you know, know how hard it is financially for them so they kind of expedite things for them we hope that they that they will if they can you know yeah there's a lot of legal legal things now what about um i don't know looking for new careers or new jobs do you help that as well i mean some patients maybe aren't able to work at all but those that maybe could do something less uh, that requires less exertion or less mobility or whatever do you help with that? I do. So in that case, we do referrals to Access VR, a vocational program, a local one here. Okay. That's grant rent. And before I send them, I give them a lot of education because, as you know, it's probably scary, you know, thinking, oh, my God, I'm 50. I'm going to get an orientation right. for a new job. So I kind of explain to them, you know, now's the time. If you've wanted to change your career, you've had an idea of something that you really wanted to do, they will help with, like, tuition for college for you to get your degree. They will pay for that. If you need a ergonomically correct chair or something in the classroom, they will do that. They will help build your resume. They will get you a job coach. They will try to find work that means is meaningful to you, you know. So that's what 
that's, a, that's another thing that I do before I actually give them an application and send them on their way to access VR. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Carla Patterson-Wingate. She's a social worker in the field of occupational health. And um, Carla, I wanted to ask what your education was like. Um, where did you go to school and for how long? And So to- I went to, I got my graduate degree at um, Syracuse University. <laughs> Yay, ask you. And um, my undergrad at Empire State and my associates at Cayuga Community College. Um, prior to this, I was a service coordinator. Do you know what that is? No. So you work with individuals with um, intellectual disabilities, and you coordinate their services. So that's a lot of how I um, gained a lot of resource knowledge around Syracuse. I was always running a patient, a, a client here, there, you know, learning new things, learning what different places and had to offer, and as far as resources. So that's how I got a lot of my resource knowledge. I did that for about four years. Then I got my master's, then they made me a supervisor, and then I left and went to um, upstate where I am now. Now, were you already on the path to social work before your father was injured? I was. You were? I was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Neat. Mm-hmm. Well, what advice would you give to someone who's interested um, in going into social work? Because there's a lot of fields that, you know, once you become a social worker, there's a lot of directions you can go. What advice would you give? Uh, my only piece of advice would be, Go with what you're passionate about because then it won't feel like work. You know, not to say I don't get up in heaven and haunt and say, oh, I got to be there at nine today. But, you know, fixing that one person's problem for the day, um, enrolling that one person with health insurance, whatever, you know, making that person happy for the day, which I know it, it's hard for them to be happy at all. It, it's worth it. It's beneficial, and it doesn't feel like work to me. It just feels like my natural thing that I loved, I've always done, which is like sort of help, help, help people. Helping people. Yeah. And some of your patients you probably see on a longer-term basis, right? I do. Some I do intense psychotherapy with. Some we do meditation. Some we do video um, Zoom um, sessions because they their health um, or injury from their job prevents them from really being able to get out. You know, they have something called sensitivity. So they, they, you know, they have their own reasons why they need to be in. So it's beneficial for us to see each other through the screen and we may do meditation prior to our session or things like that. It's really, you know, it's limitless. It's limitless to try to make someone feel whole again. You know, you don't, I don't think you give up. Now, whether they want to give up and say, hey, I don't think it's working, that's one thing. But as far as me, I'm pretty persistent. I think everyone there would say I'm pretty persistent. Isn't it hard day in, day out to deal with, um, well, you mentioned depression being one of the big issues um, that so many of the people come in with some degree of. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you muster yourself to be able to handle that each day? So uniquely with me, as I say, I'm very close to my dad, and I see it with him every day. And he's very stubborn and kind of miserable and things like that. And I may be wrong, but I try to use techniques to try to get him out of that. But I see how deep it is and how, mm-hmm. how you know, it's bad. So when I deal with other people's depression, that's who comes to my mind is my dad's. To, to be gentle, to be empathetic, to be compassionate. This is their life. This is what they're going through. And there's no need to get frustrated, to be thankful for being able to come here and do my job, being able to leave, being able to play with my kids, being able to just have a, 
to go grocery shopping, to be annoyed, you know, just be to be able to do those things. Honestly, because I really see his life and the, 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 just the way it has went. It really has changed my whole perspective on life and being thankful and grateful for things, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Occupational Health Clinical Center is lucky to have you among the staff there. Thank you. So thank you so much for coming in and talking thank to me you about your job. Me. We appreciate it. Uh, my guest has been Occupational Health Social Worker Carla Patterson-Wingate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, patient-centered diabetes care on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People who develop type 2 diabetes have a period of time when they're pre-diabetic, usually without symptoms. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Ramachandran Nayak about patient-centered diabetes care and how to possibly improve care for patients even before they develop diabetes. Dr. Nayak is a professor of endocrinology who is the assistant dean and director of translational and clinical research programs at Upstate. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Amber, and uh, thanks for having me here. So this uh, typical pro- progression of someone who will develop type 2 diabetes, there's this pre-diabetic period or mm-hmm. an early early diabetes period where there's no symptoms, right? Right. So during that time, can diabetes be prevented or delayed? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, let me go back a little bit into the natural history of progression of uh, type 2 diabetes. Even before we declare someone as having type 2 diabetes, there is almost a decade's time frame wherein people are showing progressive increase in the blood glucose levels and they are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. This is what we call it as pre-diabetes. And the pathophysiologic abnormalities of type 2 diabetes, which is primarily insulin deficiency, insulin resistance, they set in during this time frame. And it's important to recognize this group so that we can prevent the progression to type 2 diabetes. And also it's important to realize that some of the complications, particularly the macrovascular complications related to the heart, they start, the risk starts increasing even in the pre-diabetes stage. So today what we can say is if we identify people at pre-diabetes stage, we can monitor them more frequently. And secondly, we can intervene in terms of lifestyle, weight reduction, and possibly some medications so that their onset of diabetes can be delayed and progress. Uh, the onset of diabetes can be, can be delayed. So the things you mentioned, the blood glucose levels and pathophysiologic changes, are those things that um, a patient would know is happening or not necessarily? Not necessarily. In fact, majority of the patients, they do not appreciate. Even for that matter, when a frank diabetes is set in, Many, many patients, they don't have any symptoms of uh, diabetes, actually. So it's important for that, from that perspective to screen people who are at risk to identify at an earlier stage of diabetes and start intervention. Because we have now 
clearly defined guidelines as to what kind of cutoffs one should use for the glucose values A1C, which is a reflection of the preceding several months blood glucose control. And we use those criteria to decide what next needs to be done in, a, in an individual patient. So before we go forward, though, let me ask you if any of this um, has anything to do or applies to type 1 diabetes. Uh, the guidelines, what I'm talking about screening for diabetes, are more uh, relevant to type 2 diabetes. Even, of course, we have type 1 diabetes, which is uh, altogether a different disease uh, okay. by its own. It's Fortunately, it's not as common as type 2 diabetes. But in type 1 diabetes, people, the disease begins many a times like bored from the blue without any symptoms. They suddenly develop a lot oh. of symptoms of uh, excess of urination, excess of hunger, thirst and weight loss, and sometimes get into a complication of ketoacidosis. Uh, these days, the, there have been significant advances, I must say, in terms of predicting the risk of type 1 diabetes development in the first degree relatives of an index patient of type 1 diabetes. And uh, we, have, we are actually doing at Upstate uh, studies, uh, what we call natural history studies, to identify people at risk of type 1 diabetes. Even though we do not, we cannot prevent type 1 diabetes completely, but efforts are on, a lot of interventions are being studied. Uh, but that's a different ball game. So what I'm referring okay. to is a common garden variety of type 2 diabetes. Uh, the guidelines, what I was referring to earlier, they really... Uh, apply for type two for type two and type two is the one that we've seen a huge increase in the number of people that are diagnosed with it the incidence is rising right yeah absolutely unfortunately not just in the united states and uh, globally the incidence and prevalence of type 2 diabetes is uh, exponentially increasing and just to put the things in perspective if you just look at the statistics i would say one out of 11 Americans have type 2 diabetes. The, so the, the frequency of type 2 diabetes is about 9.4% of the population. And 30 million, that was a number that was put out in 2015 as the total number of people suffering from type 2 diabetes in the United States. But what is uh, disturbing is out of these 30 million, only 23 million are actually the diagnosed patients. And remaining 7 millions, they go undiagnosed. That again underscores the importance of screening and trying to identify people who might be having undiagnosed diabetes. So does it make sense to screen everyone for type 2 diabetes? The way the guidelines are that we are following as part of the standard of care, it's pretty much, I would say, yes, even though, to be precise, it, it's not that every person over the age of 18 years should have Screening for diabetes, I would just like to highlight few uh, key population characteristics. For example, the guidelines state, the American Diabetes Association brings up the guidelines for a standard of care and management of diabetes every couple years. And the, the current guidelines state that everyone over the age of 45 years should be screened for type 2 diabetes. And any woman who had had gestational diabetes should be screened every three years subsequently. And if the readings are actually normal, they can continue to follow up every three years. Okay. But this being said, there are certain high-risk populations where the screening should begin sooner than 45 years. Uh, so if someone is 18 and above who have got overweight or obesity as defined by the body mass index of 25 and above, and if they have one of the risk factors, for example, if they have first degree relative with type uh, 2 diabetes, uh, they come from a high-risk 
ethnicity uh, or race, for example, African-Americans, Asians, Latinos, Native Americans, they're all at high risk of diabetes. History of cardiovascular disease or history of hypertension or high cholesterol, women with polycystic ovaries. So all these are conditions where one should start screening much sooner. So how do you go about diagnosing someone with diabetes as opposed to pre-diabetes? Yeah, we have uh, well-defined criteria today to call someone as having diabetes versus pre-diabetes. And we use primarily three parameters, a fasting glucose, a glucose after 75 grams of uh, glucose administration uh, with water by mouth, or the glycosylated hemoglobin, or what we refer to as A1C. So if someone has a fasting glucose of equal to or greater than 126, two-hour post-75 uh, gram glucose value of uh, 200 and above, and A1C of 6.5 and above, we call as diabetes. And anything below 100 fasting, below 140 of two-hour value, and below 5.7 for A1C is normal, and anything in between is pre-diabetes. So the guidelines have very clearly defined the the, the diagnostic criteria for diabetes, and one needs to do two separate tests to, to make to sure confirm. that, to confirm the disease. Either you could be two fasting, one fasting, and A1C, any combination for that matter. So these are blood tests from the patient would, would be giving blood, and it shows you the amount of sugar in the blood? Absolutely. This okay. is just a blood test. And because of the convenience sake, majority of the times we don't really do these days the two-hour glucose value because patient has to drink glucose, come back after two hours. We just do a fasting glucose and the A1C. And okay. what is important to note is even within the pre-diabetes zone, for example, a fasting glucose of 101 to 125, it is not, uh, it's not that the risk suddenly goes up over 126 or and above. It's a continuum. The risk keeps increasing as one moves even within the pre-diabetic zone from a lower end of the range to the upper end of the range and then it exponentially goes up the moment the person gets into a full-blown diabetic uh, kind of values. So when you tell a patient and you have these numbers to show them that they're pre-diabetic, that, mm -hmm. that they're going to develop diabetes if something doesn't change, how do patients accept that news and what do they need to do to change what's happening? Um, I think it, it depends a lot on the type of patient you are dealing with and what their perceptions, beliefs, and expectations are. And majority of the times, I think today, we don't see a major concern. If put it in the right perspective, tell them that just like anyone can develop uh, any disease, diabetes being such a common condition, and uh, we need to put extra efforts to identify people who are at risk and also to intervene in those people who are at risk so that we can prevent the disease from happening, if at all we can. Uh, and it also subsequently leads to preventing uh, or delaying the complications of diabetes. I think when we put it in the right perspective, majority of the patient population, they do accept it and they respond in a very positive way. So if you have prediabetes, there may be some dietary changes or some lifestyle changes that you need to make. Are there medicines involved in the prediabetic stage? Lifestyle forms is, is, is the cornerstone of management in prediabetes. We still uh, work on uh, dietary restrictions, avoiding simple sugars and uh, restricting the calories and spacing of meals and the standard dietary guidelines. We make them meet with uh, nutritionist uh, whenever feasible and regular physical activity efforts towards weight reduction 
And on top of that, certain medications like metformin can be used in certain situations uh, to reduce the risk of progression. But uh, the major cornerstone is, is going on, basically is going to be the lifestyle intervention. Now, uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, your host, and I'm talking with Dr. Ramachandran Nayak about patient-centered diabetes care. Now, you mentioned um, the complications that can come with diabetes. And, you know, like you, like you say, diabetes, that's become such a common diagnosis. Right. So many people have it. Um, and maybe it's not as scary as some of these complications, right? Yeah, absolutely. What, what are the ones that you see most, most commonly? Yeah, so we... From the medical clinical perspective, we classify them into two broad categories. One is what we call as a microvascular complications, which include eyes, kidneys, and nerves. So we monitor for people with diabetes. We ask them to go to an ophthalmologist to have a dilated fundus exam to look for diabetes changes. We look for a urinary test to look and, and a blood test to look at kidney functions every year. And we examine their neurologic system, including their feet for sensation, etc., uh, on a regular uh, annual checkups. So these are the three primary complications, what we call as microvascular. Okay. Whereas macrovascular are those associated with respect to cardiovascular system. And so these are the two sets of complications that includes coronary artery disease, stroke, etc. In addition, diabetes also is associated with what we call as uh, comorbidities, for example, hypertension, uh, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol levels and obesity, they all go hand in hand. So we need to look for and evaluate for these conditions as well. Uh, so today the management of diabetes is not just looking at the blood glucose values and giving medications for that, but also looking primarily for cardiovascular risk assessment and managing the cardiovascular risk, comorbidities, evaluating and managing the complication, etc. All the things you mentioned, it seems like if you have diabetes, it influences everything in your body. Yeah, I, I would say pretty much, yes, most of the organ systems can get affected by diabetes. But fortunately, not everyone with diabetes will get it, but only a certain proportion of people with diabetes will get complication. But unfortunately, we do not know what are which, which is that one? proportion? Who are those people who will develop complication and who are not? So unless proved otherwise, we assume that everybody is at risk of developing complications and we work hard uh, to keep the control. Because what is well established by uh, well-controlled studies is that if we control the blood glucose levels and maintain them over a long period of time, the risk of complication can certainly be reduced if not completely averted. Well, let me ask you about um, metabolic surgery or weight loss surgery. Yeah. Because we've heard that um, in the case of people who are obese and have diabetes, that it can reverse diabetes. Is that true? That is true because the metabolic surgery or bariatric surgery, surgical procedures um, have made a major impact on the diabetes management in the recent years. For example, a gastric bypass surgery, what we call as a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass um, but it's not for every diabetic uh, person. So these surgeries are predominantly meant for people with what we call as a morbid obesity, uh, extremely over uh, extreme obesity uh, situations. So the current guidelines, just to give a very high level overview, if someone has a BMI of more than 40, uh, or even for those with BMI of 35 to 40, which is morbidly obese, um, we recommend 
bariatric surgery or a metabolic surgery uh, as a treatment of diabetes and it has been demonstrated that 30 to 50 percent of the times the diabetes can be completely reversed and even if the diabetes could not be quote-unquote cured with a metabolic surgery the requirement of diabetes medications what they are taking can be significantly brought down and those with a lesser amount of BMI anywhere from 27 and above or 30 and above um, we need to carefully consider whether or not a particular patient is a fit person it's not a standard blanket recommendation that everybody should have it but yeah but to answer your question in a one-line answer is that yes it, it has made definite difference so it might work for some patients it definitely works for people with extreme obesity yes well thank you so much for the information my guest has been dr ramachandra nayak assistant dean and director of translational and clinical research programs at upstate i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show HealthLink on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Bob Daly is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate Medical University. He gives us a powerful snapshot of life after great change in his poem, Sunday Without Dementia. I remember being touched on the arm at early mass by a perky lady from Thailand as she returned from communion, finding the coffee pot still on after 24 hours. I've done this before without dementia. Composing a net letter to a woman who did not want to encourage our relationship. Walking three miles on the Erie Canal and greeting people alone or in twos and threes with and without dogs. Saying yes, to a lady with a white cell phone in front of my house who asked to photograph the scarlet, orange, lemon green foliage of my maple trees. Puzzling about Rebecca's manuscript, Imagining Dementia, while sipping Irish whiskey sprinkled with fresh mint. I remember also calling my brother. He was out, a good sign being instructed that my daughter and her husband were departing their nearby home for the joys of Charleston or Seattle or someplace she didn't know. Fall cleaning windows of the dining room in autumn's sun with moderate success. Learning that Tina died of cancer while I was talking to my pastor. Consuming a steak, raw carrots, some crude wine without great pleasure. Watching the Cubs and Dodgers start game two. Delivering myself to Morpheus without regret, wondering how these vestiges of the day would trouble my dreams that night. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, common sleep disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, and how to prevent a secondary stroke. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.